Over the last few weeks, we've been talking about uh, where he was born. It's significant as you're wanting to show and prove the, the, uh, the authenticity and the accuracy of the scriptures and how they just speak truth to us. So we talked about where our Lord was born. Uh, we talked about when he was born. Uh, the where not only being the Bethlehem, as God's word told us, but also where in Bethlehem at the uh, flock tower where the uh, priestly shepherds would uh, watch over the sacrificial lambs. And then when they were born, they would wrap them in swaddling clothes to keep them from uh, injuring themselves so they would be without spot and blemish. And the scriptures are just just so full of these amazing truths that all point to the fact that God's word is true and accurate. So we talked about where, uh, we talked about when. Uh, the scriptures are, are full of the truth containing you know, when he was born so that we can see the accuracy uh, when, the, uh, the, uh, uh, when he was conceived by the Holy Spirit uh, on December the 25th actually birth being de uh, September the 29th, all fitting in with the glorious truth of the Feast of Tabernacles. And folks, the scriptures are just uh, full of these glorious truths that help us to understand the scripture and believe the scriptures. And that's why God's word tells us to study to show ourselves approved unto God. Uh, not only is it informative, it's just fun. It is fun to study God's word and to see it uh, come alive in such a wonderful and meaningful way. This morning, I want us to talk about how, how our Savior was born. We know where, we know when, but how? And folks, this is so significant as we search the scriptures. It's important for us to know, for without the virgin birth, our God is not, our Lord is not, the spotless, perfect Lamb of God. He is not the sinless Lamb of God. And if he's not the perfect, spotless, sinless Lamb of God, then what is he not? Our Savior. Then he does not qualify to be the Savior of the world. If there was any sin, he's not qualified. He died on a cross for no reason. As a matter of fact, without the virgin birth, the cross is meaningless. It's just another well-meaning guy, another well-meaning individual dying for his friends without the virgin birth. It's without the virgin birth, the tomb is powerless. You realize that? Without the virgin birth, Christ would be born of Adam's race, born of Adam, would be sinful, therefore death would have a claim on him. So without the virgin birth, the cross is meaningless. Without the virgin birth, the tomb is powerless. So as we come together and as we worship the Lord and as we celebrate that miraculous conception that took place, as we celebrate Christmas, His birthday, we need to understand exactly how significant it is. What I find startling is the number of pastors or the number of individuals, but even pastors, 
that do not believe in the virgin birth. Not to believe in the virgin birth is not to be saved, as we're going to look at scriptures here. It's the same way with the resurrection. I know pastors, I know ministers of churches that do not believe in the resurrection of Christ. They do not believe in the virgin birth. Not sure what they believe in. Why they, why they teach, why they preach. But the key to understanding the virgin birth is found in Luke chapter 1, verse 37. Turn with me to Luke chapter 1, verse 37. Mary had been, had the angel come before her. Luke 1, 37, For with God nothing shall be impossible. You may say, how did the virgin birth ever happen? Might as well ask, how did light come into existence? How did Adam become a living soul when God breathed on him? The bottom line is, with God, nothing shall be impossible. He's able to do all things. Look at Matthew 1. Matthew chapter 1. Start with verse 18. See, without the virgin birth, the Bible is a lie. Without the virgin birth, the Bible is a lie. But we know the Bible doesn't lie. Yet the Bible tells us, Matthew chapter 1, verse 18, Now the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise, when as his mother Mary was espoused to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man did, and not willing to make her a public example, was minded to put her away privately. But when he thought on these things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a dream, saying, Joseph, thou son of David, fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife. For that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. And she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus. For he shall save his people from their sins. Now all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, Behold, a virgin shall be with child, and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. Look back over to Luke chapter 2. Verse 7. Luke chapter 2, verse 7. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. The angel told Mary, you are going to bring forth a son. His name is going to be Emmanuel, God with us. Luke chapter 2 verse 7 tells us that it happened. 
Christ was born of a virgin. She was, he was born of a woman who had never known a man. God the Father is God the Son's Father. Our Lord was conceived by the Holy Spirit. No human father involved. This is significant. This is so important. For without God the Father being the Father, without Christ being conceived by the Holy Spirit, then He could not have been the debt payer. Then He could not have been the one that had gone to the cross and shed His blood, as we're going to see, is significant. But when I stop and think about the birth of Christ, when I stop and think about what transpired on that, that day, around September the 29th, Feast of Tabernacles, fitting in with God's Word, and fitting in with the perfect typology. But when I stop and think about December the 25th, probably being the time around which uh, Mary conceived by the Holy Spirit, I imagine heaven. I imagine heaven. And when we describe heaven, we describe it as being wonderful, don't we? We describe it as being glorious. When you stop and think about heaven, you describe it as beautiful, beyond description. We can't begin to fathom all that heaven is. It's beyond our finite imaginations. And we are thrilled that we who have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ are going to spend eternity there. We're going to one day die and go to heaven. Either that or the rapture is going to take place and we're going to be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. Either way, for me, is okay. I'm ready. Whenever God calls us home, I'm ready to go whether it be in the rapture or in death. Because it's glorious. It's going to be wonderful. But think of the opposite. Think of the opposite. Think about leaving heaven and coming to earth. Leaving heaven where you were worshipped, where you were adored, where you were praised, coming to earth where you're going to be despised, rejected, cruelly treated. Imagine being in heaven like Philippians 2, 6 and 7 tells us, equal with God, equal with God the Father. But you set aside that glory, that splendor, you made of yourself no reputation in order to pay a debt that you didn't owe but only you could pay. I can imagine going to heaven. Wow, it's going to be glorious. But imagine leaving heaven and coming here where you're going to be cruelly murdered. See, and our Lord didn't just step down from His throne. He was born of a woman. 
He didn't just say, okay, I'm going to go down and I'm going to take care of business and I'm going to do what needs to be done there. But Hebrews chapter 2 says he was born lower than the angels. To me, that is mind-boggling. He lowered himself below his creation. You talk about humility. And not just humility. Folks, we need to understand that when Christ left heaven and he came to earth, it was not just a point of humbling himself, but the humility that he was going to suffer. Yes, he humbled himself, but the goes beyond that the humiliation that he would endure the suffering and when you stop and you consider who he was it makes that act immeasurably significant in light of who he is leaving the glories and splendor of heaven being willing to die in a sinner's place. It's mind-boggling to me. The Creator humbling Himself. The Creator submitting Himself to the creation just causes me to want to worship Him and praise His name forever. God becoming man through the birth process. Being born exactly the way God the Father said it was going to be way back in Genesis chapter 3. In Genesis chapter 3 verse 15, it talks about the seed of the woman. Remember that? That was the first time that that glad announcement was made. That the seed of the woman was going to bring forth the child. And that child was going to bruise Satan's head. Yes, Satan's seed. Hey, and sometime in the new year, we're going to be talking about Satan's seed. Because we believe that the seed of the woman was a physical seed. And who came from that? The Lord Jesus Christ. So the seed of the woman is real. I'm going to tell you something, folks. As we get close to the last days and there's so many things happening, we're going to take a long, hard look at that portion of Scripture where it talks about God tells Satan and your seed that he's going to bruise your seed's head, Satan. You're going to bruise his heel, but he's going to bruise your seed's head. I think there's much more to that than what we've been preaching on and teaching and thinking about. But we're not going to do it today. But that's going to be a fascinating study. But the seed of the woman in Genesis 3.15, it was announced that there is victory in Christ Jesus and what God was going to do through the seed of the woman, through Eve, from that point on all the way. And that's one of the reasons in Genesis chapter 6 there is a, a disruption. And fallen angels try to go into the sons of men and their offspring are giants, they're monsters. And all the way through the scripture, Satan keeps trying to disrupt. Satan keeps trying to stop that seed of the woman. And I think his last hurrah is for his own seed to try to become that Messiah, that God. But imagine the Lord Jesus being born. Growing up, being dependent, being weak, being hungry, being thirsty, experiencing pain. 
And, and to me, that's one of the big points. One of the major points is I meditate on who He is and how much He loves me. He is the creator of the world. He could have said, as He created us, He could have designed our bodies so that the places that He knew the nails were going to be driven into, well, those pain receptors were just non-existent. That's the way I would have done it, right? I'd have done it so that, that when that crown of thorns was placed on my head, that it didn't hurt there. And when those nails were driven into my hand, I would make sure that where those nails plunged, that there were no pain receptors, that I wouldn't feel anything. Or when that spear entered my side, I'd make sure it didn't hurt. But he didn't do that tells you how much He loves you. Matter of fact, the Scriptures want us, wants us to understand the significance of that so much that it tells us that when He was given something to drink, when they offered Him gall, which is a painkiller, on Calvary's cross, when He tasted, He wouldn't drink it because gall was a painkiller and He did not want a shortcut. He didn't want an easy way out. But imagine him being born, suffering pain, grief, sadness. The scriptures tell us that Jesus wept. Then suffering death at the hands of cruel and hateful men. Rejection. Where once he had had the praise and adoration of, and worship of angels, he exchanged all of that for rejection and death. The Son of God. I, I love this. I was going to give this to Tim to put up on the board. Forgot to do it. But the Son of God became the Son of Man in order that the sons of men might become the sons of God. Do you get that? The Son of God became the Son of Man in order that the sons of men might become the sons of God. What a plan of salvation. What a perfect plan of salvation. Jesus Christ was willing to become like us in order that we might become like Him in glory. Philippians tells us we're going to have a body like His. Perfect. This corruptible is going to put on incorruption. This mortal is going to put on immortality. Well, how is all that going to happen? How is that going to happen? We're back again to the significance of the virgin birth. Without the virgin birth, it would not happen. We looked at Luke 1 a while ago. We looked at Matthew chapter 1, verse 18, all talking about the virgin birth. The Bible says clearly that the Messiah, that Christ Jesus, is going to be born of a virgin. Doctors may not be able to explain it. Scientists may not be able to tell you exactly how it occurred, but I'll t I can tell you exactly how it occurred. With God, all things are possible.
the very one who breathed life into Adam and he became a living soul, planted that seed in Mary. And this woman who had to find grace, who found grace in the eyes of God, conceived. It was prophesied. Look at Isaiah chapter 7. Isaiah chapter 7. Verse 14. Isaiah 7 verse 14. Therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. God with us. It happened. Look at Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. We talked about these verses last week. But Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there shall be no end upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment that with justice from henceforth even forever and the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. It was prophesied by God. His word was at stake and he made it happen. There in Isaiah was prophesied in Matthew and in Luke we see it literally fulfilled. The scriptures proclaim it. And you reject the virgin birth on the grounds, well, that's just not possible. I'm here to tell you, with God, all things are possible. Look at 1 John. This is for any preachers out there or anybody. I don't, scientists, doctors, anybody. Look at 1 John. Chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4. Get verse 2. Hereby know you the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is of God. So in order to be of God, do we have to confess that Jesus Christ came in the flesh? That's what Emmanuel is, God with us, Jehovah, God, our, the Lord, our Savior, God incarnate. John chapter 1, verse 14, we looked at that last week. The Word of God was made flesh and what? Tabernacled, dwelt among us. The virgin birth is just like the resurrection. Just like the resurrection. You deny the resurrection, you can't have a relationship with Christ. You're denying God's word and the work of God. You deny the virgin birth, you are denying the work of God and the very thing that enabled Christ to be your Savior and to be perfect, the spotless Lamb of God. It's by faith you're saved and you are denying the very... Thing 
that caused him to be able to be qualified to be the Savior. That God himself became man. God in the flesh. God incarnate. That's who Christ is. Born of a virgin. No human father. A human mother. She was that instrument. She was that willing instrument of God. But his father was the true and living God of all creation. God incarnate. Look at John chapter 1. I just, we just looked, quoted it, but look at John chapter 1, verse 14, Tim. John chapter 1, verse 14. And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. The Word was made flesh. 1 Timothy 3.16 tells us that He was manifest in the flesh. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness, that God was manifest in the flesh justified in the Spirit. God was manifest in the flesh. Who manifested Him? If you've seen me talking to Philip, you've seen the Father. Remember Philip saying, Lord, show us the Father and it'll suffice us. And what did Christ say? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. John 1.18 says that Christ Jesus, He is the one who has revealed the Father. Christ was manifest in the flesh. The Word of God, the Word was made flesh. He was manifest in the flesh. Romans 8.3 says that in the likeness of sinful flesh, Christ was born. In the likeness of sinful flesh, but not sinful. He wasn't sinful. He was without sin. How could that happen? It never happened before any man born from Adam's seed, male or female, were born lost. In Adam we all die. In Christ we're all made alive. And when you look at these verses here, it tells us that it's not the flesh that corrupts. It's not the flesh that corrupts. It's not the flesh that contaminates. As a matter of fact, we're going to have new bodies that are going to be flesh and bone. Christ told, told us that you're going to have a body like mine. When Thomas came doubting, Christ said, here, uh, first time he said, don't touch me. Second time he said, hey, reach hither. You touch where the spear went. You touch where my nail prints were. Does, does, he says, does the spirit have Flesh and bone like I have? Christ had flesh and bone. We're going to get a body like His. Flesh and bone, but without corruption. Hallelujah. But 1 Corinthians 15, 50 says, says that flesh and blood, now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot enter the kingdom of God. Neither doth corruption inherit incorruption. We're going to get bodies of flesh and bone, but there will be no blood. There will be no blood. That's why I'm convinced that it's the blood that at the fall, 
was tainted with Adam's rebellion, with his fall, the change that occurred. God said, Adam, the day you sin, you shall die. He began dying at that very moment. You see, I mean, imagine if the Scripture told us that the life of the flesh is in the blood. Boy, that would be pretty pretty significant, wouldn't it? If the Scripture says the life of the flesh is in the blood, that it's the blood that circulates through the body, that that's where the life is. Well, it does. It does. Look at Leviticus. Chapter 17. Look at Leviticus chapter 17. Look at verse 11. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, which is not going to inherit the kingdom of God. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given unto you upon the altar to make an atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes an atonement for the soul. Look at verse 14. For it is the life of all flesh. The blood of it is for the life thereof. Therefore I said unto the children of Israel, You shall not eat the blood of no matter of no manner of flesh, for the life of all flesh is the blood thereof. And whosoever eateth it shall be cut off. The life of the flesh is in the blood. It was the blood that was tainted at the fall. So when, uh, when, uh, when, when your father came into your mother and you were born from that, you were born lost by virtue of what you inherit from Adam. The blood that is tainted, yet Christ's body, flesh and bone, not corruptible. We need to understand that not a single drop of blood passes from the mother to the baby. Nor, actually, does a single drop of blood pass from the father to the baby. But it's the Father that introduces that element that causes the circulatory system to be developed in that child. And for the, the, the baby's blood is, is his own blood, but it comes from that, that DNA part that, that the Father presents. But Christ had no human father. So no blood from the mother ever enters the baby. The mother nourishes it, the mother cares for it through the umbilical cord, and the placenta absorbs all the, through osmosis, all the waste, and it, it passes out, uh, but the mother's blood never enters, never mingles. Why is that significant? Let me give you a few scriptures to tell you why that is, that's so significant. Look at Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3, verse 25. The blood that circulated through the Lord Jesus Christ was not corrupt. It was never tainted by Adam's race. 
Romans 3.25, whom God hath set forth to be a a propitiation through faith in His blood to declare His righteousness for the remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God. It's through faith in His blood. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin, according to the book of Hebrews. And all that pointing back to all those sacrifices that God commanded Israel to perform in order to be a type of the blood sacrifice that was coming, the sacrifice whose only He being the way, the truth, and the life. It was His blood and His blood alone that could pay that debt because He was perfect. My blood couldn't do it. No one else's blood could do it. When I read this, I encourage you when you read this to read it through faith in His blood. Look at Romans chapter 5, verse 9. Romans 5, verse 9. Much more than being now justified by His blood. The reason this is so significant is because it is only His blood that can pay that sin debt that was owed. Ephesians chapter 1. It just keeps getting better and better. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7. In whom we have redemption through His blood. In whom we have redemption through His blood. Forgiveness of sin. Look at Revelation 12. Verse 11. Revelation 12. And they overcame him by the blood, talking about him being the Antichrist. And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb. Not their blood. Not their sacrifice. It is the blood of the Lamb. It is the blood of Jesus Christ. And His blood only. They can pay the debt that you and I owe. Jesus Christ was the sinless, spotless Lamb of God. Had no human father to pass on the corruption. He had a human nature, but no sin nature. He had a divine nature, a human nature, 100% human, 100% God. What a Savior. For those who simply say he was a good teacher, that he was a great example, oh, folks, he was so much more than that. I didn't need a good example. I didn't need a good teacher. I needed a Savior. I needed a Redeemer. That's who Jesus Christ is. One more scripture. 1 Peter. 
Boy, I love this verse. I mean, I love all of them, but I really love this verse. 1 Peter 1, 18. For as much as you know that you were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Jesus Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. The virgin birth is absolutely significant, absolutely necessary for us to serve the God incarnate, God in the flesh who left heaven knowing what he was going to endure in order that we might gain heaven through his work on Calvary's cross. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning. We come with our hearts humble, with our hearts full of gratitude and appreciation for all you did on our behalf. Father, we come recognizing that the virgin birth is true. We can't medically explain it, but Father, we don't have to. You don't explain it. You just tell us that's what happened. And by faith, we accept it. And Father, we read from your word that that faith is what pleases you. So Father, we demonstrate faith in believing that Jesus Christ was God in the flesh, tabernacling with man, born of a virgin, in order to die on Calvary's cross. Father, we rejoice in that plan of salvation that shakes hell to its core. Father, we're thankful for that salvation that's offered to all who believe and by faith trust in you. We thank you that there's nothing that we have to do, that we must do. There's no work, there's no efforts, there are no deeds that could ever win your affection, that could ever win, make us righteous, make us righteous. But Father, it's through the work of Christ on Calvary's cross. And Father, it's to the cross that we cling. Father, how thankful we are this morning that we can declare that Christ was delivered for our offenses and he was raised again for our justification. Payment was made. And Father, how that changes us and declares us righteous through the work as the stone was rolled away. Father, we celebrate all those things this morning. We celebrate the birth. We celebrate the cross. We celebrate the fact that the tomb is empty. And we rejoice and who we are in Christ. In Him, sealed into the day of redemption. And we rejoice in that truth. And we worship the true God of heaven. And it's the name that's above all other names. In that name of Jesus Christ, who's Lord of all, that we pray. Amen.